Hey everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. On this podcast, I dive deep into the journeys of trailblazing South Asians, sharing the stories of the leaders and dreamers lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora. Before I jump into today's episode, I want to spend a second and tell you guys about the newly launched Trailblazers Agency and Expert Network. At South Asian Trailblazers, we've long been dedicated to elevating and convening extraordinary leaders through our media platform and our community-wide events. Our agency and expert network is simply the next step toward fulfilling that mission. We're forging impactful collaborations between exceptional leaders and visionary organizations. If you're part of a company or organization looking for fresh and diverse voices to speak at your next summit, conference, or event, or represent you in a new brand campaign, please get in touch. If you're looking for someone to offer you expertise on a project that you're working on, reach out and we can plug you into our expert network of trailblazers across industries. And finally, if you're a speaker or a leader looking to connect with companies who want to share in your expertise, feel free to reach out. You can learn all about us at southasiantrailblazers.com slash trailblazers-agency. And with that, let's jump into our episode. Today, I am so thrilled to welcome a trailblazer who has also become a dear friend and mentor over the last couple of years. Nora Ali is the CEO and co-founder of Mason Media a full-service production company and brand studio, which she co-founded alongside MLB All-Star Alex Rodriguez, aka A-Rod, and visionary billionaire entrepreneur Mark Laurie. With a degree in statistics and quantitative finance from Harvard, Nora first began her career by building a foundation in capital markets as an Asian equities associate on the trading floor of Goldman Sachs. She then pivoted to the world of e-commerce, helping build and launch Jet.com as an early member of the product and marketing teams and seeing the company through its $3.3 billion acquisition by Walmart. Nora then took her financial, retail, and startup expertise to broadcast journalism and joined Cheddar, where she served as an on-air anchor covering tech, business, and entertainment news from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. At Cheddar, Nora also created, produced, and hosted several specialty series with a special interest in elevating historically overlooked voices. Nora also more recently hosted Morning Brew's flagship podcast, Business Casual, a top 10 business podcast on Apple, which debuted at the top of its charts when she joined as the new host. Nora is the child of Bangladeshi immigrants and a proud Minnesotan now living in New York City. She's an award-winning violinist and pianist, having frequently performed the national anthem at Major League Baseball games, appearing as a soloist with several professional orchestras, and making her Carnegie Hall debut in May 2023. Nora is someone that I have been excited about having on this podcast for many, many years. Nora, you know how thrilled I am to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining me on South Asian Trailblazers. 
That was amazing because I don't think I've ever sat through that much of my bio before, just staring at my own face. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. Well, you have to do it because we have to remind you of all the things that you've done and everyone needs the hype sometimes. It's like you were singing happy birthday to me. It's like, I didn't know exactly what to do with my face. You have to conduct the orchestra. There you go. That's what I learned. Yes. So, Nora, you've obviously built this multifaceted career in such a short period of time. And I have to ask you, what did baby Nora actually dream of being when she grew up? (laughs) Baby Nora. Okay. Baby Nora always wanted attention. I'm a middle child. (laughs) And we have home videos where my dad is filming with an old school big video camera and he's filming my little sister because she's cuter than me filming my older sister because she's probably doing something smart (laughs) and it's just me waving my violin bow in front of the camera saying dad dad look at me so definitely something that was being an authority being in front of a camera perhaps being a showman in some ways that was baby Nora that was kid Nora and then there is actually a record of me when I was 12 years old on a radio show where I was on for piano and the host asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a CEO. And he said, of what? And I said, I I don't know. (laughs) I just wanted to be a boss. And I guess now I'm doing a little bit of both of that. It's in entertainment. I've hosted things, as you so eloquently stated from my bio. And I'm also a CEO. So I guess I made it all happen from what Baby Nora wanted to do. Well, it sounds like baby Nora would be very proud. I love that that it's captured on some radio show. You're going to have to find that at some point. I should, yes. (laughs) So you went on to Harvard, you got a degree in statistics and quantitative finance, and you joined one of the most prestigious financial institutions in the world, Goldman Sachs, on the trading floor as an Asian equities associate. What drew you to the world of finance? Mm. It was the default thing to do (laughs) at the time that I graduated. I was always pretty driven by being the best, doing the best, achieving as much as I could. It also goes back to my family's immigrant background, as you know very well. What can my parents and my relatives brag about to others in the community? And Goldman Sachs was, it's a name that people recognize, even if they didn't fully understand what I did for work. And it started with the summer internship between junior and senior year of college. I got that internship. And then to me, it was a competition for myself. How fast could I get a full-time offer (laughs) during the internship? I wouldn't say I necessarily loved the work itself. I'm not somebody who ever really saw myself in finance long-term, but I knew that it would be an incredible stepping stone and open a lot of doors. So I made it my mission to get an offer to get multiple offers and to do it really quickly. And I did that and I joined and my team was amazing. I actually had a reunion dinner with them literally last week, my original Goldman team. So even though I didn't love finance necessarily or working in equities, the people I worked with were absolutely amazing. And that's been a theme throughout my entire career. So I guess what drew me to it initially was the name. What kept me there for a few years was the people And now I've moved on to things and really used those skills in my other jobs. Yeah. It's super interesting because since I first met you, one of the things that I've just found myself endeared to you from the very start and capable of learning so much is because I had such a similar experience coming out of Harvard of 
pursuing finance and then eventually making my way to other pursuits, as you know. (laughs) But it's really interesting to hear how much, even the immigrant story and wanting to have something that your parents could talk about and brag about and prove what sacrifices they'd made were worth it is such a resonant part of our careers. You then made a sharp pivot to e-commerce by joining Jet.com, which was founded by Mark Laurie and eventually sold to Walmart for $3.3 billion. Talk to me about that pivot, particularly into product and marketing. At the time that I learned about Jet.com, no one was really talking about it. And it was pre-launch. It was less than 100 employees. And I found out about it through a friend who then sent my resume to his friend who invested in Jet. And there was no particular role that I applied for. I just kind of had this feeling that I wanted to go work for a startup. Because at the time, I'm older than you, as we all know, at the time, it was only starting to be cool to try to work at a startup. I feel like now it's a little bit of the default for the circles that we're in is to start your own business or to go work for a new one. Yeah. But at the time, it was different to try to work at a startup. So I found out about this. They weren't hiring for a specific role. They were kind of just looking for generalists at the time. So I went and I interviewed, didn't know what I was interviewing for, but they realized that I had not only a quantitative background and understood finance, but I could speak the language of numbers and wear a lot of different hats. And I was very hungry and eager and got along really well with the people. Again, this theme of getting along with the team. And really my meeting with Mark Laurie was just so eye-opening because I'm a chronic over-preparer and I was so prepared. I was pretty nervous. And I even told him that I was nervous at the beginning of the meeting. I'm also weirdly honest during interviews. And it was just us brainstorming together and he didn't ask me any trying to get me questions or no no gotcha questions, I guess. It really was just this conversation. And I said, I would like to work for this guy. There's just something about him. I feel like I can learn from him and I feel supported by him, even though he's this now billionaire. So I joined on the marketing team initially, did whatever they asked me to do. And then pretty soon just started getting put on nebulous new projects where everything is pretty nebulous at a startup. But I slowly started getting promoted. I transitioned onto the product team as a product manager because actually before that, our marketing engineers didn't have a product person to manage their work. So I just by default became that because I got close to the marketing engineers and the marketing tech team. And then from there, I transitioned into being a product manager for the actual customer experience for the site itself and still remain very close to the marketing engineer. So I was building a lot of relationships internally. I felt like kind of a connector within the company. And they say being a product manager is like being a mini CEO, which... It's a cheesy thing to say, but that's really what it felt like. I felt like I had my own little business within the company that I was running. And I, to this day, feel like I will never be able to recreate that feeling of working at Jet.com in the early days. And my best friends to this day who I met there say that also. Other coworkers who are still in touch with, it was smart young people who were hungry and passionate and believed in the mission. Of course, there were bad days or days where we didn't know what would happen when the Walmart announcement came to fruition, but I would not give up that experience for anything because I like to thrive in these nebulous environments and work with really, really smart people. And that's something that I'm trying to recreate now in my current company. Absolutely. I want to spend a little bit more time on 
your time at Jet because you mentioned you trying to recreate the atmosphere and what you felt at Jet. Can you talk a little bit about the learnings you got from your time at Jet and how you're trying to apply them now with your own company, Mason Media? Having a mindset that is the opposite of this is how it's always been done is the main thing I look for (laughs) when I hire people. Because at Jet, there was no, this is how it's always been done necessarily. Of course, there were comps. We were trying to compete against Amazon and other e-commerce companies. But Mark really embodies this feeling of, let's just do things differently. And let's try different things and see how it goes versus thinking about it too hard before actually implementing it. And at Mason Media, we're in the entertainment industry, which is historically archaic, hasn't necessarily kept up with the times, as is evidenced by some of the strikes that we've been seeing. And when I have hired my team, I have a head of development and a COO right now. We're an an all-female executive team, which I'm really proud of. Yes, they've been in the industry their entire careers for the most part, but they are willing to question the status quo. And if something historically hasn't worked, they're willing to try it again. Or if something has worked in the past, whether it's telling stories of overlooked voices or working with relatively newer partners who don't necessarily have a track record yet or giving people a shot or giving ideas and entities a shot, they really have that mindset. So I think that's the most important thing is find people to work with who have this try new things and do things differently mindset. I think that's the big thing I'm trying to apply. I love that. It sounds like a lot of what you learned came from the time you spent with Mark Laurie, who, as you alluded to, is now a billionaire entrepreneur (laughs) and serial founder and the brains behind diapers.com, which sold to Amazon, Jet, which sold to Walmart. It sounds like Mark has generally become an important sponsor and advocate for you throughout your career thus far, and especially in your journey at Mason Media. But can you tell us a little bit how you first formed a relationship with him and what that looked like? (laughs) It wasn't that in the interview room when he interviewed me for Jet, (laughs) when I told him I was scared. And I honestly, I think that probably made a big difference because he, our values were trust, transparency, and fairness. And the founders he chooses to work with, he trusts implicitly. I will set meetings with him to keep him updated, get his advice on things, get his backing on certain things. And again, I'll always over-prepare I come to the meeting with all my bullet points, all my evidence, all my supporting points. And he'll say, honestly, at the end of every spiel that I give, he says, do you think it's a good idea? If you think it's a good idea, then let's do it, which is amazing. So he really, really trusts me. And the transparency part of it also is really important. If things are not going well, share it. He'll help you. He'll unlock doors. He'll tap into his network to make sure that things get resolved. So yeah, I think just working from him From day one, from being nervous (laughs) to meet him to now, just knowing that I have a support and trust, we've moved magnitudes, but it's really been a journey to get to this point. And I'm really proud of how far we've come in terms of our relationship. I can imagine. And I'm curious, now you're absolutely in the position of being a mentor and role model for so many, myself included. What has that relationship taught you about how you want to help mentor other uprising stars in your industry and beyond, particularly, as you said, given your passion for uplifting overlooked voices? Yeah. Yeah. The question that I get the most when I mentor people is around how do you make career switches? And my learnings from Mark are 
really being able to read between the lines of what people are actually looking for and what their skill sets are and what their strengths are and being pretty honest about it. And I get this question a lot. How do I become a news anchor? How do I get on camera? Not everyone is cut out (laughs) for it. So I think being honest as a mentor is really, really important and giving hard feedback is really, really important. It's not always a good thing to encourage people to pursue a particular path. So that's definitely been a learning for me. And also just being really transparent about my experience. I can give you all the advice in the world. I can tell you what I did. Making the transition from Jet to anchoring at Cheddar was probably the biggest pivot of my career and the question I get the most. And people ask me how I did that. And I got very, very lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. A lot of it was serendipitous. It might not work for you. My situation is anomalous. So just trying to be clear on how I present my own story and how I can maybe extract learnings from it to help you, but being very honest about it might not work out if you try to do the exact same things that I did. I literally had a bunch of these conversations yesterday. At the time of this recording, yesterday, (laughs) I was at Harvard Business School for an Asian American Entrepreneurs panel. So all these students asking me, how did you make those transitions? How did you do X, Y, Z? And you just have to say, also times are different now (laughs) compared to when I was going up in my career. So yeah, just transparency about all the pieces and don't sugarcoat anything. That's another thing. I actually love that a lot because I think blind support is sometimes what gets a lot of us in trouble. And you need someone that's going to give you the real honest (laughs) truth about what they think your skills and weaknesses potentially are. Exactly. And to that point, I should say, yes, Mark, for the most part says, Nora, if you think it's a good idea, let's do it. But of course, he'll push back and question certain things if it's like actually not a good idea. (laughs) So he's not blindly supporting me. (laughs) I love that. Now, I want to spend a second on it and because you just alluded to it. Between Jet.com and prior to founding Mason Media, you dove headfirst into broadcast journalism. You served as an anchor at Cheddar and then the host of Morning Brew's chart-topping business casual podcast. What inspired that pivot and what made you realize this is something that you wanted to try given how different it was from the career you had carved out for yourself up to that point? At the time that I decided it was time for something new when I was at Jet, I was loving my time there, but I felt like I am so comfortable right now that it feels like a good time to take a big risk. And I'd always had this voice in the back of my head that said, you should try being in media and broadcast hosting because I grew up performing. As you also mentioned in my bio, performing piano and violin, I was on stages a lot. I was emceeing stuff and talking in front of people a lot. And I really enjoyed it and waving my violin bow in front of my dad's (laughs) camera. And I gave myself a six-month timeline of if it doesn't work out in six months, then you just stick to product. You're really enjoying it. It's a good career. So I put together a spreadsheet of all the people that I tangentially knew in the industry. And then I also cold DM'd and reached out to a bunch of people also. So a talent agent got back to me. Long story short, he sent me on this audition to Cheddar and I did not think I would get this job because not only was it an on-air role, it was for a permanent anchor that anchored multiple hours a day. And I went through the whole process and I'm not being humble. To my literal shock, they were like, (laughs) you got the job because they've been looking for a long time and went through thousands of applicants, allegedly. And they gave me the job because I didn't have formal 
anchoring experience because I worked in finance and tech and startups, retail with Walmart. Those were the topics that we covered at Cheddar. So I had this inside scoop and nuanced layer of knowledge that your traditional maybe news anchor might not have as much access to. And I was comfortable in front of the camera. They're not going to hire somebody who looks like a weirdo or a doofus in front of the camera. (laughs) And I had to do a screen test. I had to interview somebody at an anchor desk and I had a producer in my ear, in my earpiece, which was really weird to me because they're talking to me while I'm talking and then I have to toss it back after I conduct the interview. So it was just a lot of logistical stuff that I'd never done before. But again, I over-prepared for it. They had me, before I got to the office for the interviews and for the screen test, I was told, put together a couple 30-second newsreaders based on these articles. I had no clue what a newsreader was. All it is is a 30-second script for a news story, in your own words. But instead of just writing a script, I did all the camera cues, all like the graphics cues. I did like a whole rundown of a show, basically, or of a segment. So I went a little above and beyond, not because I was trying to show off, but because when I Googled, that's what came up (laughs) for Newsreader. Maybe I Googled wrong. This was pre-chap GPT. I think that also helps give them comfort. Like, even if she hasn't done this before, she will go above and beyond and learn and even expand beyond her role and produce and pitch concepts and do all of that. So that was the pivot. Loved that job. Was super happy doing it, even though for most of it, it was COVID. (laughs) So that's not as fun to be broadcasting from home, but it was an amazing experience. Did any part of you consider doing it long-term? Yeah, yeah. While I was there, that was the goal. Be an anchor on CNBC or some other network and just be an on-camera person or be an on-camera host, which is why, I guess we'll get to this, but when Mark called me and asked me to start a production company, it really was a big decision for me to make. Normally, when someone asks you to start a company with some funding up front, it might seem like a no-brainer, especially if you envision yourself as an entrepreneur. But I didn't necessarily at that point in my life. When I was younger, yes, when I was on this radio show and I was saying I wanted to be a CEO, the word entrepreneur was also newly introduced to me around that time. I remember my dad telling me what that word meant. He's like, I see you being an entrepreneur. I'm like, what's that, dad? And he, it's like someone who builds things from scratch and like wears all the hats and does all the things. And I said, yeah, dad, you're right. That sounds like me. So. It wasn't at the time something that I necessarily envisioned, but I knew it was in me somewhere. So it just all fell into place. And by fell into place, I had to painstakingly put it all into place after getting this phone call and figuring out what that actually meant. But I do miss the on-camera piece of it. I miss it in some ways and don't miss it in other ways. So I'm just trying to make the best of the existing circumstances and optimize for what I'm doing right now. Absolutely. Well, now that you preempted it, I want to talk about Mason Media. Tell us about the inception and also tell us what you do. Yes, I'll start with what we do. Mason is a full-service production company and brand studio. And I'm trying to give you the spiel, not in the way that I give it to investors because we have been fundraising, as you know. (laughs) So I'm not going (laughs) to give you the long-form, jazzy version of it, just the very basic. Our two core businesses are premium content, where we're mostly non-scripted now. So it's doc series, 
feature documentaries, competition formats, other kinds of formats, et cetera. And our specialty is business and innovation stories. So anything with the lens on entrepreneurship and forward thinking, thinking about our near future and building for the future, all of that. That's our specialty, given that our founding team largely comes from a startup and tech background and innovation background. But that's the lens we take. It doesn't mean we don't develop across genres. So sports, food, health and wellness, real estate and architecture, Mm. really anything that's saleable and marketable. And our customers, our clients are network streamers, digital buyers. So Netflix, Amazon, Apple, ABC, NBC, Fox, et cetera. And we also have a brand studio business where we service startups, founders, venture firms, other corporate entities for any of their content needs in a very, very bespoke fashion. Because we've been there, we've been the client. We're a lot smaller than your larger agency. So especially for founders who might not be able to navigate or have the resources to use a larger agency, we're that scrappy bespoke version of that for any content needs. So like I said, it's a small, all-female executive team. And it's been really fun to build it together. And we're just excited to really own this lane that hasn't been owned before. Of course, there's folks who do business and innovation stories, but in the way that, say, a Hello Sunshine is known for telling stories that center women, we want to be top of mind and the premier production company that's known for business and innovation. That's what we do. The way it all came together, Mark Laurie called me because he had kept track of me after I left Jet. After I left Jet, we got lunch together. He wanted to know what I was doing with my career. It was very supportive. And then a couple of weeks later, he took me and my mom out to dinner, which I thought was wow. super random. But it's because he really does want to get to know you and your motivations and get to know you personally. And the reason he wanted to take my mom out to dinner is because she's a corporate scientist at 3M. She's a baddie. She has 60 plus patents. And Mark just wow. wanted to learn about her science background. And he's always got ideas percolating. So he was like, Nora's mom seems like a cool person to get to know. <laughs> And that all honestly helped me later on when I was trying to make the decision of, do I quit this job that I like to go work with Mark Laurie? And I consulted my parents about it and they like trusted him too, which is super helpful because my mom's pals with him now. Anyway, (laughs) so yeah, Mark called me, had a couple ideas for some specific shows, but really said, we see this white space and really smart entrepreneurship focused, business focused, innovation focused content out there. Alex and I are partnering on a lot of business things. Right now, we don't know exactly what the business model is or what this could be, but we know that you're the person to do it. So then I went on my journey of my due diligence and talking to everyone who could possibly give me advice. I was personally repped by United Talent Agency at the time because of Cheddar. Talked to my UTA reps. They said, Nora, we will add people to your team that represent production companies and non-scripted people. Like, we got your back. If you do this, like, we are here for you. Don't say no, because we think you'll regret it if you say no. This is an amazing (laughs) opportunity. Because in the world of entertainment, the weight that people's names carry, for better or for worse, makes a huge difference. So the fact that you have a known entity, A-Rod, and then also this tech billionaire, Mark Laurie, who can unlock access to different worlds and stories and IP and characters, that just automatically puts us ahead of randos who willy-nilly want to put together a production company. Anyway, this is a very long way of answering your question. And I'm very cognizant of when I am answering too long because I've been a podcast host. (laughs) I'm going to land the sentence plane right there. That's how it all came to be. No, I love that. And it's so helpful to have the context and understand 
obviously the genesis of Mason Media, but your thought process behind obviously <laughs> leaving a career that you were excited about and all the people yeah. that helped inform that decision. You recently hard launched Mason Media, but I know you've been building it for some time. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the soft buildup and some of the early challenges you faced? When I quit Cheddar, and for the first few months, that was definitely the hardest time for me in terms of just my own identity. Because wow. I was on camera every day, and that's what people knew me for. And I got DMs every day asking, where'd you go? Why aren't you on TV anymore? What are you doing now? And I couldn't really talk about it because of the high profile nature of who my co-founders are. So I could loosely share that I'm working on something. But that was really difficult because I had been on camera for so many years. And at the time, like I said, I foresaw myself doing that as my career. So I felt pretty uneasy for a while. So that was a challenge. And then in our society, what you do for work is like the first question people ask you in any environment now, which yeah. I'm trying to be very cognizant of that. When I meet new people, I try not to have that be the first thing I ask them. And it was hard to be in new environments and meet new people at networking events where, yeah, I could share what I was doing, but I couldn't point them to anything online about it. There was no press release. There was no website. There was nothing. So it just, even if I named who I was working with, it felt fake. It didn't feel like a real thing. So that was definitely difficult. But then once I onboarded my head of development and then onboarded my COO, like I had an actual team and started to really feel real. We had a couple pilots with networks, which made it feel really real on our development slate. We have 10 to 15 shows on our slate. It's just, there's a lot wow. going on. And I have to take a step back and remind myself, yes, I've been building quietly, which for what feels like forever, but we have done a lot, even if it's not apparent necessarily to the public. But it was really refreshing to put out our first press release, to be able to send a link to my family, <laughs> to my relatives. <laughs> Look, it's real. It's actually a thing. So it's been a little bit better not to be able to actually talk about it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you be candid in that respect. And I know when I saw the launch, I was so excited because as you alluded to, we had loosely spoken about it <laughs> years ago now. And I can't even imagine what it was like building that without, to your point, being able to actually tell people what exactly it was you're doing. I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of what you've been doing over the past couple of years leading up to this hard launch? Yeah, we've been developing shows, content ideas. And everything that we develop takes a lot of resources, a lot of thought. You build decks, you build sizzles. But most importantly, you don't just want to come up with ideas in a vacuum. Everything that we develop is in partnership or tied to something tangible, whether it's unique access into a world or exclusive access that no one else has. And I can't share too much, obviously, so I'm going to speak in generics, but exclusive access into a world or you found this world-class expert in this very specific thing and they have a really engaged following and now the next step for them is to create an actual TV show around them, both in TV and in podcasts. Or there's this really interesting book or article looking for really smart IP that we, Mesa Media, can uniquely take to the next level and create a format around or create a docu-series around or a feature documentary around. So it's searching for these concepts, these people and these ideas, and then developing really smart formats and concepts around them that networks, streamers, buyers will actually want. It can become something big, not just necessarily a one-off thing, become a franchise. The asset that we are creating is IP. So that's what we've been doing. And because there's only 
three of us. We try to work in volume as much as we can, but instead of trying to stick spaghetti against a wall, we're very, 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 very thoughtful about all the ideas that we pursue and really nurture the relationships that we have with network executives, with streamers and all of that. And we get a lot of incoming as well, which is fun. Because even before our hard launch, within UTA, we were known. So our agents would send us talent who wanted to work with us or co-production partners or people who had access to books and ideas and all of that. It was like there was too much happening, drinking out of a fire hose or whatever they say, which is a good problem to have. But all of that takes time to build up before you actually can see something come to fruition. So that's what we've been working on very diligently. And I'm so looking forward to the day when I can just like send someone to a platform and say, here's our first show. And hopefully it'll be multiple at once, right? Once you get one going, it's like when it rains, it pours, I guess. yeah. yeah. And the beginning is the hardest part to get those credits under your belt as a new production company. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing that. I want to spend a second on something that you've now mentioned a few times, which is that you're one of the few media companies and production studios out there that have an all-female executive team. Can you talk about whether there was intention behind that? And also, I know you've had a very unique experience being a woman of color working in this industry. Can you talk about what your experience has been and what you're trying to do to challenge the status quo? Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, in any industry, it's hard to be a woman, a woman of color. In entertainment, specifically, most of the people that I come across and that I'm pitching to and that I'm talking to have mostly only been in entertainment. So you work your way from the mailroom at some talent agency all the way up to being an executive. So you really blood, sweat, and tears, all of that. So then when I come in as this noob who's relatively young, (laughs) woman of color, they're like, I cut the line, basically. So I can sense that it's hard for me to feel like I have authority in a lot of these rooms. I mean, this is a whole like philosophical existential thing that we can talk about now or another day. But sometimes I feel like I have to have a little bit of a different persona when I'm in certain rooms, whether it's to pitch to executives, which... By the way, I don't have to do much in the pitch rooms because my head of development handles that. But just to be the CEO and be the boss of this company that's doing the pitch, sometimes I feel like I have to bring a little bit more gravitas and slowness than is inherent to me. I'm naturally a very bubbly, ebullient person. I gesticulate a lot, as you can see. It's in those rooms and then on my fundraising journey. When I'm meeting with certain folks, I feel like I just have to be a little bit more still and more authoritative in a way. Uh, It messes with you a little bit. It's like you have to tap into some other version of yourself. (laughs) Can I ask, was the creation of this persona something you instinctively felt like you needed to do or was it based on feedback you'd gotten? It was based on discussions, honestly, that I've had with other female founders during my fundraise process. Wow. I've interviewed so many founders, right? And it was a a big topic of conversation at Cheddar is how hard it is to raise as a woman and or a person of color. And I was like, I've heard all these stories, but actually experiencing it, people just don't take you as seriously when you're the one who shows up in the room. And I've had meetings, in-person meetings, where the VC bro will just be on his phone and only half paying attention. And I just know that if I was also a bro, they would probably pay more attention to me. And I've heard stories of those VC bros will say, oh yeah, I met with this guy 
who pitched me this idea. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And I wrote a check for a million dollars. It's just like handshake deals because they're bros, they're friends, whatever. And I'm selling my soul and (laughs) over-preparing and putting together more materials than I even need to just prove that my business is robust and it's real and there's a lot of growth potential and all of that. So yeah, I had some heart-to-hearts with my female founder friends and they said, you have to be a little bit more toned down in a way and also just not be thirsty. Don't be too enthusiastic. Let them come to you. Ghost them a little bit. Go silent for a little bit. Which honestly, when I stopped being so thirsty, that's when things started happening. (laughs) It might've just been coincidence. It might just have been me getting tired. But in the beginning of my fundraising journey, I was just go, 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 go. Meet with as many people as you can. Follow up consistently. Just be all up in people's grills all the time. And then I was like, let me just take a step back. And that's when people feel like maybe they're missing out on something and want to do business wow. with you. And I've also been mistaken for the assistant on email threads oh before gosh. where we're trying to organize with multiple offices to get a time for a pitch. Like, hey, Nora, can you send the times that work for the rest of your team? Or, you know, some more specific language that indicates that they definitely think I'm the assistant. And I take the high road. I'm like, yep, here are the times and here are the attendees my name, comma CEO, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, yeah, Nora Ali. Like there's no other Nora Ali type CEOs in Hollywood as much. It's just not the norm. So it's going to be kind of tough to navigate all of that. I want to spend another second on this because I'm curious, you have the weight of Mark Laurie and A-Rod behind you and you're still experiencing this? Yes. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yes, yes. Because of what, the patterns are otherwise. Other fronted or athlete-backed production companies, the vast majority of them are run by men (laughs) and kind of older men. So you assume that if it's actually a real legit thing that this billionaire and this world-famous athlete are focused in, that they would find a dude who's been there, done that, is known, and put him in charge. So for them to pluck me... Like, listen, I'm very proud of my background. I know I bring a lot of expertise and value that other people don't have, but I haven't built a production company before. There's a lot that I haven't done before and I recognize that. So they took me out of obscurity basically and decided you are in charge of our production company. So I think people just don't expect it. So even though, yes, these men have blessed me to be in charge (laughs) of our company, people are like, is this just like a fun little side project that they're doing? Like, is this actually real? So I feel like it's so uphill all the time. And I'm really, really feeling it (laughs) for the first time. Well, I appreciate you being so honest about it. And I guess to come back to the original question is, has that been a part of the intention behind building an all-female team? And how are you thinking about hiring and ideally shifting the industry as you move forward? Yeah, yeah. In this industry, in many industries, it's always been about the path of least resistance where who is the easiest person that I can hire? And often it'll be not somebody who comes from a historically overlooked background, right? And I saw this in past jobs where I would raise alarm bells about let's make sure our teams are inclusive. And it's like, oh, it's it's a hard out there anyway. It's we just want to find the best people and they end up being homogenous because whatever, for whatever reason. And even if it takes more time, I want to 
create a team that hasn't happened before. This all-female team who is in charge. We are in charge of these rich dudes. We are the ones who are (laughs) making the decisions. So I think hiring going forward... Would love to have majority female for as long as we can. That would be amazing, but it doesn't mean we're not going to hire men. Women of color, people of color, BIPOC, generally just, we want to be giving access and opportunities to people who otherwise wouldn't have it. And that's actually where the name Mason comes from for Mason Media is we are Masons who are building a foundation for others who otherwise wouldn't have that access. And that's for people we hire. It's for us paying attention to people who are pitching stories where they can't get in the room with other production companies, but we'll always take the meeting and give people a shot. So that's the external facing reason for Mason Media. And very personally, it's also my niece's name and she's the most important person in my life. But it's great. This is also a testament to how much Mark and Alex were just like, Nora, you're in charge. I gave them a few options to name the company and I told them why Mason is extra personal to me. And they were like, yeah, you choose. That's great. And it just really works for the ethos of what we're trying to do and the alliteration. All of it just kind of works nicely. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. It sounds like a destiny name is what it sounds like. (laughs) I have to ask, five years from now, 10 years from now, you look back at the journey. What would constitute success for you? Sound mental health. Wow. Regardless of how the company turns out, am I happy? And not having panic attacks and anxiety attacks every other day. (laughs) I think that's it, yeah. And I'm glad you asked the question because I'm trying to untether myself from success, meaning work success. Yeah, the business outcome. Exactly. Even if it fails for whatever reason, the fact that I went on this journey and tried this and got amazing humans like Amanda and Dana, the rest of my exec team, getting them on board to be on this journey with me. And Dana, who is at Westbrook Media, Will and Jada Pinkett Smith's production company, like an existing machine of an entity. She took the risk to work at this tiny little startup with us. And then Amanda, who is just a creative genius, and she has chosen to bring her creative genius to us and be this team. That itself, I'm glad I'm saying this out loud. I needed to hear this. (laughs) Like that (laughs) itself to me is already success enough. And the fact that we're on this journey. So five to 10 years from now, if I'm happy, that's success. I love that. I love that so much. I have to ask, and you spoke about how you actually spoke about this at Harvard Business School not 24 hours ago, but people spend decades and entire business school careers trying to make the pivots that you have and trying to chart the path that you have. What is your advice for people that are looking to make similar pivots who are looking to gain that confidence and move straight through to the things that they actually want to do? Yeah, it is all about the people that you meet. (laughs) Unfortunately, the only job that I have gotten through a formal job portal is my Goldman internship after my junior year (laughs) of college. Everything else has been, this person knows this person who sends a resume over, my cold DM to talent agent for Cheddar, and then Mark calling me up for Mason. You just never know who's going to come back 
into your life and unlock opportunities. So I would say, especially when you're young and have energy, just meet with (laughs) as many people as humanly possible. Also, from my perspective, when I'm hiring, I don't necessarily have a specific timeline for, okay, I'm going to release the job description and the open role on this date and we're going to hire by this date, et cetera. It's really like, this is how it happened with my COO. My head of development, Amanda, had just introduced me to Dana because she thought we'd get along last year. And then as we're building the company, I'm thinking, okay, like the skill sets that Dana has are the ones that we will be needing either now or very soon. So let me just meet with her again. I met with her in person. And as we're talking, I'm thinking, okay, she would actually be a perfect addition, a compliment to our company. And that's how her role came to be. And I built the role around her. And I'm also thinking about this for potentially hiring a junior person soon. I get cold DMs all the time. And I look at your background, your resume, and I'm like, okay, this could be someone that I might want to hire down the line or be able to connect to other people. Let me just meet with them. And you don't have to have a specific ask or a need or a want when you reach out to someone for mentorship or for advice. Just meet with them. No shame. I don't respond to all of my cold DMs. I just don't have the time. But on the off chance that I do, that could be somebody that I end up hiring down the line. So if you're trying to make pivots, rely on your network, grow your network as best you can. And if you want to DM me after listening to this podcast, feel free on LinkedIn. Can't promise I'll get back to everybody, but I will read every message at least. (laughs) I love that so much. And it resonates so deeply because I was actually telling someone not a week ago that I have yet to receive a single job through a resume portal. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Especially the ones post-graduation and the jobs Mm -hmm. that have been significant, not a single one has been me plopping my resume somewhere. So (laughs) it resonates a ton and I totally agree and I appreciate you verbalizing what I think a lot of people need to hear. Yeah. One thing I will be remiss if I don't ask you about is your illustrious career in music. You are an award-winning violinist, pianist. You've played at MLB games. We recently debuted at Carnegie Hall. What role has music continued to play in your life? I have reconnected with music actually within the last couple years. And I think it's allowed me to think about and assess what an impact it really has made on my career and just how I think and how I approach anything. When you are a classical musician who competes, it's always about perfection. That's just what you're judged on. Is it perfect? Is it in tune? Is your rhythm correct? Are all the notes exactly correct? And because of that, I've always strived for perfection. But there's also a lot of room for musical interpretation. And now that I don't practice as much, I'm very imperfect when I play, but I'm becoming more comfortable with that. So I'm trying to apply that also to my career and my life is you don't always have to have the answers. You don't always have to be perfect just do your best and people will still appreciate it. But going back to why I reconnect with music recently, there's this group, shout out, hashtag not an ad, not sponsored, a group called After Arts. And it's for very serious musicians, most of whom are conservatory trained, at some point thought they might be professional musicians, but have chosen other career paths. So a lot of people in business, finance, tech, medicine, etc. And there's concerts every few weeks. That's how the Carnegie thing came to be. There's events and just all these people that are like me who are so passionate about music and really 
good at music, but are doing other things. So it's something that connects all of us. So I'm in a quartet now. We're playing for a bunch of old people in a very nice penthouse apartment <laughs> in a few weeks, which brings me joy. And it's just, it's something that I can prepare for. It's a 40 minute program of just our quartet. And it's given me something to focus on, to think about that isn't work, which has really brought me joy. So a long way of answering your question, music has taught me so much about how to take feedback, about how to be okay with imperfection and how to find something to be passionate about and excited about that isn't work and to create something beautiful with people. I just love it so much. I love that. Nora, I honestly feel like I could spend (laughs) hours talking to you and I appreciate the way in which you distill lessons and wisdom from the variety of experiences you've had. So thank you so much for sharing that with me over the past many years and also, of course, coming on Trailblazers today. I'm glad we finally did this. I'm so excited. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you want to get new episodes straight to your inbox, subscribe to our newsletter at SouthAsianTrailBlazers.com and follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.